and welcome back to the Perspectives in History podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening, as always. This is our series on the Korean War, Part 5, Points of No Return. Before we begin, I'd like to apologize for the podcast being late again. As I believe I mentioned previously, I am actively in the process of rewriting significant portions of the script that I wrote for this series, and as this work has progressed, I've realized that the edits that I've had to make are far more extensive than I had originally thought. I will continue to do my best to get every episode released as close to the usual release date as possible, but just be aware that there may be more delays like this throughout the rest of the series. As for the reworked versions of the previous installations of this series that I mentioned before, as of right now I have not yet finished with these either, but work is progressing, and I'm hoping to have them completed and uploaded by February. I'd like to thank you very much for your patience as I work to provide the best and most comprehensive content that I can. Anyway, with all that out of the way, let's get on with the show. In the previous episode of our series on the Korean War, we watched as the UN forces fought to hold off the Korean People's Army by establishing a defensive perimeter around the crucial southern city of Busan in the final days of July 1950. Two months later, General Douglas MacArthur put into action a bold plan that would ultimately turn the tide of the war. On September 15th, UN forces performed a successful amphibious landing at the port city of Incheon, just west of Seoul. Within two weeks, the capital was back in South Korean hands. After discussing the climactic Battle of Incheon, we made a bit of a digression to discuss just some of the crimes against humanity that characterized this conflict on both sides. For instance, as they were forced to retreat, North Korean soldiers carried out massacres of civilians and prisoners of war in occupied South Korea. From the very first days of the war, the South Korean government had committed similar atrocities against their political opponents. Between 60 and 200,000 suspected leftists were extrajudicially murdered by South Korean forces in the early months of the war in what is referred to as the Bodo League Massacre. Nor were the Americans blameless in this conflict either. The most infamous war crime carried out by American forces during the war was the Nogunri Massacre, when, over the course of three days, U.S. soldiers killed hundreds of Korean refugees who were attempting to flee the war zone. More impactful, however, was the bombing campaign that the U.S. carried out over North Korea. From the time the bombings began in earnest in November of 1950 until the armistice in July 1953, the United States Air Force dropped approximately 600,000 tons of explosives on North Korea, resulting in the destruction of between 60 and 80 percent of the country's cities and an incalculable number of civilian casualties. Also in the last episode, I took a bit of time to discuss the role of the United Nations in the Korean War. To briefly recap, during the first month of the war, the UN Security Council passed two resolutions condemning North Korea's invasion and calling on member states to support the South Korean War effort by supplying military forces. A further resolution passed a month later provided for the creation of a unified command structure for the UN coalition forces under the leadership of the United States. Although the first coalition forces arrived in Korea shortly after the passage of these resolutions, it was not until after the Battle of Incheon that they began to arrive in earnest. In total, 22 different nations responded to the call to arms and contributed forces to the UN coalition. They were as follows. The United Kingdom, the Philippines, Australia, Turkey, Thailand, the Netherlands, France, Greece, Canada, New Zealand, Belgium, Luxembourg, Ethiopia, Colombia, South Africa, India, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Italy. What exactly motivated each of these countries, all with disparate national interests, to make such a significant commitment to the defense of South Korea? Each individual country had made this decision with their own strategic considerations in mind, but if it can be said that there was a common motivating factor that they all shared, it was to legitimize the United Nations as an institution. The conflict in Korea was the first major test of the recently formed UN and the principle of collective security on which it was founded. The failure of the UN's predecessor organization, the League of Nations, to intervene when Japan invaded Manchuria in 1931 had not left the collective memory of the UN's member states. By responding in kind to North Korea's aggressive actions, the members of the UN believed that they were avoiding the League of Nations' mistakes and proving the legitimacy of their new organization. Matters of ideology also played a role in this decision. Each member of the UN coalition was either firmly within the US-led anti-communist bloc or had ambitions to join it. 
For countries like the UK and France, their commitment to South Korea reflected their stance against international communism. It is, of course, worth noting that both of these aforementioned countries were struggling to maintain their colonial empires and were both fighting off communist insurgencies of their own in their overseas territories, Malaysia for the UK, Indochina for France. There are also more practical concerns at play. In the post-World War II global order, most of the nations within the UN coalition were, to some degree or another, dependent on American assistance for economic development and national security. They reasoned that by committing forces to Korea, they would ingratiate themselves to the Americans. No country demonstrates this dynamic better than Turkey, which, in its relationship to the Western world, had long been considered sort of a pariah. Turkey made the fifth largest contribution to the UN coalition, 5,450 soldiers in total, in the hopes of demonstrating their commitment to America and the West. Their gamble did eventually pay off, and in 1952, Turkey was invited to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. Thailand, which contributed about 1,300 soldiers, constituted a somewhat unique case. Thailand's national reputation had been tarnished thanks to its collaboration with Imperial Japan and the Axis powers during World War II. In the post-war period, the Thai government had been anxious to distance itself from this reputation and to rehabilitate its image on the international stage. Thailand's wartime ally Japan was also a major participant in the war, although it was not officially a member of the UN coalition. Its participation in the war effort was not voluntary, and there were no Japanese troops on the ground. Nonetheless, for Japan, the war in Korea was, as Japanese Prime Minister Shigeru Yoshida once said, a, quote, gift from the gods, end quote. For one, the Japanese economy, which was in shambles at the conclusion of World War II, was greatly stimulated by American wartime procurements, thereby laying the groundwork for the reintegration of Japan into the global economy and for the much-vaunted post-war economic miracle. From a political standpoint, the war in Korea and the urgent need for the Americans to maintain the support of the Japanese public expedited the end of the American military occupation of Japan, which was officially brought to an end on September 8, 1951. While Japan's post-war constitution technically forbade the country from maintaining a standing military, the outbreak of war in Korea had served to convince American foreign policymakers that Japan should be allowed to rearm itself to a certain degree in order to defend against the ever-looming threat of communism in Asia. In view of this, it is no coincidence that the current Japanese military, the Japan Self-Defense Force, was founded in 1954, only a year after the conclusion of hostilities in Korea. One final country I'd like to take a look at is India, which did not participate directly in the fighting, but instead contributed medical personnel to the UN coalition. For India, involvement in the Korean War was an opportunity to demonstrate its foreign policy principles of non-alignment and non-belligerence. In line with these principles, India also engaged in a number of diplomatic efforts involving the war in Korea, such as the creation of an international commission to oversee the repatriation of prisoners of war from both sides of the conflict but we'll have a lot more to say about this later on. Due to a number of different factors, the organization of coalition forces in Korea took on a different character to military coalitions of previous conflicts. During the Second World War, for instance, individual military units were commanded by their own countries, with operational integration only at the highest levels of the command structure. However, the UN coalition in Korea had to be more tightly integrated for the simple fact of the matter that most of the non-American or South Korean coalition forces had not been sent to Korea as large units with a complete support structure and, as a result, were incapable of operating independently in the field. Therefore, coalition units, which were typically battalion-sized, that is, a thousand men, were integrated directly into the U.S. Army. The first coalition soldiers to arrive in Korea were from Australia, the Philippines, and the United Kingdom. The fact that each of these countries had a common language and that these soldiers were already familiar with American military procedures aided in the process of integration. It was with the arrival of contingents from other nations, beginning with the Turkish Brigade in October 1950, that the Americans began to run into major logistical and communications issues. To begin with, there was the language barrier. In any given unit, one may have encountered any number of a dozen different languages. Naturally, English became the unofficial lingua franca, and UN personnel were tasked with providing translation. Furthermore, the organization of food rations proved to be a particularly thorny issue. Each of the nationalities represented within the coalition had their own dietary customs that had to be catered to. For instance, pork, which was a staple of U.S. rations, 
could not be fed to the Turkish soldiers for religious reasons. The Thai and Filipino soldiers required large quantities of rice, while the Belgians, French, and Dutch consumed greater quantities of bread and potatoes, and so on and so forth. Providing for the needs of each of these different nationalities placed strains on the American logistical system, but for the most part, these issues did not prove to be completely debilitating. As far as weapons and combat equipment went, this was no issue, as all the UN soldiers were issued American-manufactured items. The various challenges posed by the integration of these UN forces paled in comparison to the larger task at hand, that being the integration of the remaining ROK forces with the US Army. As we've seen previously, in the first months of the war, the ROK Army had practically disintegrated, losing much of its organizational capacity. As a result, by the time of the Incheon landings, the ROK Army was hardly capable of functioning independently of their American counterparts. In September 1950, smaller ROK Army units began to be embedded within larger American ones. In order to facilitate this process, a new organization, KATUSA, was founded. The Korean augmentation to the United States Army was initially a reserve force consisting of about 20,000 Korean soldiers who were assigned to American Army units. Having been established in July 1950, recruitment for Katusa was greatly ramped up in the following months to provide much-needed manpower for the understrength American divisions. For instance, by September, one-third of the 7th Infantry Division of the U.S. Army consisted of Katusa soldiers. In mid-August, 8,600 raw South Korean recruits were shipped to the U.S. military base in Yokohama, Japan, to undergo basic training. General Johnny Walker reported to MacArthur that, quote, They are stunned, confused, and exhausted. They are right out of the rice paddies and have nothing but shorts and straw hats, end quote. The great majority of these recruits had no knowledge of the English language, nor did they have any prior military experience to speak of. Over the course of the next three weeks, these men would have to be trained, equipped, and otherwise prepared to participate in an amphibious landing, one of the most tactically difficult operations that a modern military can undertake. The commander of the 7th Infantry Division, Major Spencer Edwards, later reported that, quote, some of the ROKs participated heroically, and some of them just disappeared at the first sign of danger. The great majority of them behaved just as any other troops with three weeks' worth of training would have. They just didn't know what was going on, end quote. As described previously, the success of the landings at Incheon led directly to the recapture of Seoul by UN forces by the end of September 1950. Meanwhile, the rest of the UN forces further to the south finally managed to break out from the Busan perimeter, forcing the KPA to begin a full retreat. Seoul itself lay absolutely devastated after having withstood a week of intense urban warfare and numerous raids by US aircraft. An eyewitness account of the scene reads as follows, quote, Heaps of brick and plaster are all that's left of many buildings. Everywhere lie broken beams, shattered glass, splintered trees, toppled telephone poles, and wrecked vehicles blocking streets. Decomposing bodies lie scattered about, and the smell of ash, smoke, and death lingers over streets where torn, smudged posters of Stalin and Kim Il-sung still survey the destruction." End quote. At the time, local officials estimated that at least 4,250 of Seoul's civilian population had been killed by American bombardments alone, to say nothing of those who died in the course of the fighting. In a pattern that should be familiar to listeners at this point, the KPA is alleged to have executed hundreds of people as they were forced to retreat from the city. These victims are primarily identified as policemen, soldiers, bureaucrats, landlords, and so on. Essentially, anyone deemed to be reactionary in the North Koreans' estimation. In the wake of their retreat, the KPA also forcibly conscripted thousands of more people to help bolster their ranks in advance of the anticipated invasion of the North. An indeterminate number of other people fled North of their own volition, either out of sympathy for the DPRK or for fear of the inevitable retribution that the re-government was certain to enact in the coming days. Even months before the Battle of Incheon had made such a thing possible, there had been an ongoing debate among American decision-makers as to whether or not to continue offensive operations north of the 38th parallel. By October 1950, the mandate of the initial UN Security Council resolution, calling on North Korea to withdraw its forces back across the 38th parallel, had been fulfilled. However, the language of subsequent resolutions calling for the restoration of peace and security on the peninsula was rather vague. Decision-makers on both sides saw the reunification of the country as a necessary precondition to the restoration of peace and security, but disagreed on what that would look like in practice. 
For Yakov Malik, the Soviet ambassador to the United Nations, this would mean the immediate withdrawal of all foreign troops from the peninsula. Malik argued that the UN police action had been concluded, and that it would be best to allow the Koreans themselves to work towards unification without undue foreign influence. Of course, those in the American government were not inclined to see things that way. The American ambassador to the UN summarized the predominant American point of view in a speech given before the Security Council on August 10th, quote, Shall only part of the country be assured freedom? I think not. Koreans have the right to be free, independent, and united. Under the guidance of the UN, the United States will do its part to help them enjoy these rights, end quote. Douglas MacArthur, viewing this decision in the context of the Cold War, maintained that the North Korean regime should be destroyed completely, stating that, quote, we win here or lose everywhere, end quote. Intense pressure was also coming from the South Koreans themselves, who had repeatedly indicated their intention to cross the 38th parallel, regardless of what the UN decided. In a speech given on September 19th, Syngman Rhee stated, quote, we have to advance as far as the Manchurian border until not a single enemy soldier is left in our country. End quote. Of course, a full-scale invasion of the North could only increase the risk of a Soviet or Chinese-led counteroffensive. However, the benefits were ultimately thought to outweigh the risks. As one State Department document from this time concluded, quote, a total victory on the peninsula would be of incalculable importance in Asia and throughout the world. End quote. On September 27th, MacArthur finally got what he wanted, a directive from the Joint Chiefs of Staff authorizing him to invade North Korea. The document read in part, quote, Your military objective is the destruction of the North Korean armed forces. In attaining this objective, you are authorized to conduct military operations north of the 38th parallel in Korea, provided that at the time of such an operation, there has been no entry into North Korea by any major Soviet or Chinese forces, no announcement of intended entry, nor an active threat to counter our operations in the north. Under no circumstances will your forces cross the Chinese or Soviet borders of Korea. End quote. The first ROK Army forces crossed the 38th parallel on October 1st. As ROK Colonel Kim Chong Sun recalled, quote, It was overwhelming. I thought that that damned line which had separated our people and our country for so long was about to crumble, and we would be reunited. We were all so excited that we practically ran across the 38th parallel, end quote. The rest of the UN force followed suit over the course of the following week. On the east side of the country, UN forces were able to advance rapidly and virtually unopposed. The port city of Wonsan fell on October 10th. Ham Hung, another 130 miles or so to the north, was captured a week later. All the while, the enemy was seemingly nowhere to be found, prompting at least one ROK officer to ponder why the North Koreans had abandoned such formidable natural defenses. The UN forces in the west faced somewhat stiffer resistance as they pushed closer and closer to the North Korean capital, Pyongyang. Stubborn delaying actions, including one near the city of Sariwon, 75 miles south of Pyongyang, resulted in heavy casualties for the KPA, but bought Chairman Kim and the rest of the DPRK leadership time to evacuate the city. From the relative safety of the temporary capital at Kangye, nearly 300 miles to the northeast, Kim issued a directive to the remaining soldiers of the KPA, forbidding them from retreating any further, and authorizing the execution of traitors and deserters, mainly officers, who were blamed for the recent string of defeats. Parts 1 through 3 of the six-part order read, quote, 1. No retreat we now have nowhere to withdraw to. The Korean People's Army is the military power of the fatherland and of the people, who ask you to defend your positions to the death. 2. Defeatists and those who mislead the people are a dangerous enemy in combat. Anyone, regardless of rank, who causes confusion in a unit, discards his weapon, or leaves combat without authorization, is considered an enemy of the people, and as such will be summarily executed. 3. Officers of all ranks will join combat units and exercise command on the battlefield, actively lead in their area of responsibility, become role models, initiate a powerful counterattack, close on the enemy, and strike severe blows. End quote. Meanwhile, the first UN forces reached Pyongyang on October 17th, and within two days the city was completely under their control. Thanks to the near-constant air raids to which it had been subjected practically from the moment the U.S. entered the war, the ancient city, which was once among the largest on the Korean peninsula, had been reduced to a bombed-out husk of its former self. The following description of the city, as it appeared circa October 1950, comes courtesy of an Associated Press reporter who observed it from the cockpit of an American reconnaissance aircraft. Quote, 
The besieged capital of North Korea looks from the air like an empty citadel where death is king. It no longer seems to be a city at all. It is more like a blackened community of the dead, a charred ghost town from which all the living have fled before a sudden plague. Two rail lines converge in the heart of the city, and the marshalling yards are a great black stain. The hulks of twisted and overturned locomotives and passenger and freight cars rest on their sides. Other patches of blaze-blackened buildings dot the city, making the city itself a cancer without hope. End quote. Leading the attack on Pyongyang was the 1st Cavalry Division of the U.S. Army, somewhat to the disappointment of ROK Army General Paik son Yup, who wanted his men to have the honor of being the first to enter the enemy capital. In his book, Ghost Flames, Life and Death in a Hidden War, author Charles J. Hanley relates the following account of the UN forces' entry into the city, told from the perspective of Private Buddy Wenzel of the 7th Cavalry Regiment. Quote, Now, in weather turned unseasonably wintry, the 7th Cavalry has entered Pyongyang, 75 miles north of the 38th parallel. The men find a hilly, half-deserted city of bombed-out buildings, broad boulevards, and nervous people. Malls are plastered with large propaganda posters denouncing the evil and cruel Americans. The U.S. troops who had entered the city before them have been busy looting government offices and private homes. The South Korean military, meanwhile, has been summarily executing a few of the KPA prisoners. End quote. On October 30th, less than a week after the capture of the city, Syngman Rhee flew into Pyongyang from Seoul. For the South Korean president, it was undoubtedly an emotional return, his first time setting foot in the northern half of the country in nearly four decades. Rhee's birthplace was a village not very far from Pyongyang itself, and he had spent a lot of time in the region in his younger days. More significantly, with the capture of Pyongyang, it appeared as though Rhee's long-held ambitions to reunify the Korean peninsula were close to fruition. That morning, a crowd of about 50,000 locals gathered to hear Rhee speak in front of the City Hall building. The speech he gave on this occasion was transcribed by Korean Associated Press correspondent Bill Shin. Quote, I was last here in 1911, and I am able to come again because the United Nations have driven out the communists. I will come again anytime you want me to. No one will ever again divide our people. As the same lineage of Tangun, the mythical founder of the Korean nation 24 centuries before Christ, we must unify our nation and preserve freedom and peace forever in this beautiful land of ours by expelling the communists. Now is the time for us to be united in one mind. As a homogenous race for over 4,000 years, we are the people sharing the lot of life and death by helping each other even in dire poverty or hardship. You, the citizens of Pyongyang who have assembled here today, should stand with us in our march to the Yalu. End quote. The South Korean president was in very high spirits during the flight back to Seoul. Bill Shin reports Rhea saying the following in light of the day's events, quote, I have never been happier than today. When I ordered our people to fight against the communist aggressors, I envisioned our victory. Today, I realize that victory is being achieved. Not an inch of our territory should be in communist hands. Not a single person should live a life of slavery under communist rule. Now, people in Pyongyang have come to live a free life. All this has been possible thanks to divine protection. I am deeply grateful to the United Nations, which protects us from the communist aggressors, as well as American forces and our officers and men, fighting gallantly under the command of General MacArthur." End quote. It was not long, however, before issues arose regarding how the occupation of the North should be handled. UN Resolution 376, adopted by the General Assembly on October 7th, while acknowledging the jurisdiction of the Republic of Korea over the southern half of the country, recommended that until such a time that a democratic, united Republic of Korea could be founded as a result of UN-supervised elections, that the UN itself should take on the responsibilities of government and civil administration in the North. Naturally, this did not sit well with President Rhee and other South Korean officials, who felt that the ROK was already the sole legitimate government of Korea, and thus was well within its sovereign rights to take on these responsibilities itself. As of October 10th, the ROK Home Ministry reported that the National Police already controlled some nine towns to the north of the 38th parallel, and that a further 30,000 men were being recruited to handle the occupation of the rest of the country. The Americans, who by this point were no doubt aware to some degree about the repressive actions carried out by the ROK government in the south, sided with the UN on this matter. They were anxious to avoid further excessive bloodshed, which they were certain would come about if the South Koreans were allowed to handle the occupation of the North completely by themselves. American ambassador to the ROK, John Muccio, 
managed to convince Reed to abide by the United Nations' decision and to not undertake actions relating to the government and civil administration of the North without express permission from General MacArthur. Even without active interference from the South Koreans, managing the occupation of the North proved difficult enough. Initially, the UN command tried to enlist the help of the North Koreans themselves. On October 13th, a proclamation issued by General Frank Milburn of the U.S. Army First Corps stated, quote, All laws and ordinances must remain in effect unless rescinded, suspended, or banned by UN forces. North Korean officials must carry out their administrative functions until replaced by the Allied Command, end quote. This proved to be overly optimistic, as most North Korean officials had long since fled, and those who remained were uncooperative, to say the least. The UN command then tried to appoint their own candidates to government positions, but they struggled to identify qualified individuals. As a result, the UN ran into significant difficulties maintaining order in the occupied territory, especially in Pyongyang. A report published by the New York Times on October 30th described the situation on the ground in the city. Quote, Although less than half of the population of 600,000 stayed behind when the United States and South Korean troops entered the city, thousands of refugees are returning daily, aggravating the difficulties. Under the communist government, all civil positions were held by party members, and even jobs that required any amount of know-how were restricted to those believed to be politically reliable. The result was that, when the communist troops left the city, all civilians capable of running municipal services took off with them." End quote. Ultimately, most occupation duties fell to the South Korean military police and right-wing paramilitary organizations, despite the wishes of the Americans and UN command. Just as they had feared, these groups began to enact violent retribution against the communists. However, determining who was genuinely committed to the ideology and who was not proved to be a nearly impossible task. One ROK policeman named Kim Sam-gyu described this dilemma, quote, Ordinary North Koreans, with serious expressions on their faces, emphasize that the great majority of KPA soldiers are just young boys who are forced into military service. They request magnanimous treatment of KPA prisoners of war. When asked how you distinguish Reds who must be cleansed, the response was that a party member in a position of responsibility should be cleansed, while rank-and-file members can be tolerated for a while. Actually, the really bad elements have already fled, they told us. End quote. Local committees were established in the occupied North for the purposes of screening actual communists from the general population, but in many places, anyone with any connection to the party or state was targeted for repression. Historian Wada Haruki quotes Kim Chong-won, the ROK military police commander in Pyongyang, as declaring, quote, not only members of the Communist Party, but everyone in affiliated organizations, such as professional associations and confederations of women, youth, workers, and farmers, would be executed, end quote. In the final days of October 1950, UN troops, specifically soldiers of the ROK Army 6th Division, captured Chosan, a small town near the Yalu River, which demarcates the border between Korea and China. As these soldiers gazed across the river, they no doubt reflected on their situation. In a little over a month, the tide of war had been reversed entirely. Their mission, the reunification of the Korean nation, was closer than ever before. The more subdued among them perhaps wondered how the Chinese would respond to this turn of events. Would they acquiesce to the defeat of their Korean comrades? Would they tolerate the presence of such a large, potentially hostile armed force right on their border? And what of the Soviets, further to the northeast? Thus far, everything had indicated that an intervention enforced by either party was unlikely. At least, the UN command was supremely confident of this. Unbeknownst to them, thousands of Chinese troops had already crossed the border into Korea over the past week, with thousands more to follow. As a matter of fact, the Chinese leadership had arrived at the decision to intervene in Korea about two and a half weeks prior, and although the entry of China into the war would take the enemy by surprise, it had not come to pass completely without warning. On October 1st, Chinese Foreign Minister Zhou Enlai issued an official communique to the United States government warning sternly that, quote, the Chinese people will not tolerate foreign aggression, nor will they supinely tolerate seeing their neighbors being savagely invaded by imperialists, end quote. This message was regarded as being little more than geopolitical grandstanding and was dismissed out of hand. Two days later, however, a more specific and credible threat was communicated to the State Department, courtesy of K.M. Panikar, the Indian ambassador to China. Panikar informed his superiors in New Delhi of a conversation that he'd recently had with Zhou Enlai, in which he was told on no uncertain terms 
that China would intervene in Korea in the event that the Americans crossed the 38th parallel. The message was dutifully passed along to Washington, D.C., but once again it was disregarded despite having been transmitted through supposedly neutral diplomatic channels. President Truman specifically did not trust Panikar on the basis that, quote, in the past, Mr. Panikar had played the game of the Chinese Communists fairly regularly, so that his statement could not be taken as that of an impartial observer. It might very well be no more than a replay of communist propaganda, end quote. But while the president may have been unwilling to take the Indian diplomat at his word, he still remained wary of the prospect of foreign intervention on the side of the North Koreans. It was this concern, at least in part, that motivated the president to arrange a face-to-face -face meeting with General MacArthur in mid-October. It would be the first and only such meeting between these two men. Since the war began, MacArthur had spent nearly all of his time at his headquarters in Tokyo. As a matter of fact, he had not set foot on the soil of the continental United States in over a decade. Truman and his advisors had begun to worry that all this time spent away from the country had led the general to forget what it was he was fighting for, so to speak. By meeting with him in person, Truman hoped to establish a better rapport with MacArthur and to ensure that he and the general were on the same page, as he later explained, quote, Events since June had shown me that MacArthur had lost some of his contacts with the country and its people in the many years that he had been abroad. I had made some efforts through Harriman and others to let him see the worldwide picture as we saw it in Washington, but I felt that we had little success. I thought he might adjust more easily if he was to hear it from me directly." End quote. Truman proposed Wake Island, an isolated atoll in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and the site of an important battle during World War II as the location for this conference. MacArthur cordially agreed to meet with the president, but according to Ambassador Muccio, quote, the general appeared irked, disgusted, and at the same time uneasy during the plane ride there, end quote. MacArthur complained about being dragged away from his duties during an active war to participate in what he perceived to be little more than a political stunt, and it's not very difficult to understand why he felt this way. Midterm elections were slated to be held the following month, and although Truman had declined to take an active role in campaigning due to the war, he and his staff believed that by meeting with General MacArthur, the president would appear to the general public to be taking a more proactive role in the conflict, and could claim to have played a part in the much sensationalized victories at Incheon and Busan. The meeting between General Douglas MacArthur and President Harry Truman on Wake Island took place in the morning of October 15th, 1950. The entire conversation lasted only about an hour, and although it took place behind closed doors, the notes written by one of Truman's advisors give us a decent idea of how the discussion went. A number of different topics relating to the geopolitical situation in the East were discussed, not necessarily limited to Korea. MacArthur later noted, with some dissatisfaction, that, quote, no new policies, no new strategy of war or international politics were proposed or discussed, end quote. Truman's primary concern was, as discussed, the prospect of Chinese intervention. MacArthur reassured the president that such a likelihood was low. He contended that if the Chinese were going to enter the conflict, they would have done so months ago. If they did decide to intervene at this point, MacArthur believed that they would not be able to get more than about 50,000 troops across the border, and without a significant air force, they would be at a severe disadvantage both numerically and technologically. In other words, the UN forces in Korea would be more than capable of handling such a situation. Victory in Korea, MacArthur told the president, would be achieved in a matter of weeks. With any luck, American military personnel would be back home by Christmas. As we will see shortly, General MacArthur had made a grave miscalculation, and the statements that he made at the Wake Island Conference would be used against him in the future and ultimately contribute to his removal from command. But for the time being, all parties involved left Wake Island satisfied to some degree or another. Truman and his advisors returned to Washington, D.C., reassured that the UNC's commander-in-chief had the situation completely under control. Although it is difficult to say with any certainty the degree to which the president's publicity stunt impacted the results of the election that was held on November 7th, his party, the Democrats, retained control of Congress. MacArthur, on the other hand, returned to Tokyo exhibiting a self-confidence that bordered on hubris. Almost immediately, he began issuing orders to his field commanders that contradicted his own orders from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Specifically, he authorized all units to proceed to the Yalu, despite the fact that the Joint Chiefs' directive of September 27th had specified only Korean troops were allowed north of the pyongyang wonsan line so as to avoid unnecessarily provoking China. 
When questioned about his decision by the Joint Chiefs, MacArthur countered that it was a matter of military necessity, and moreover, he'd already received authorization from Truman for this at Wake Island. This act of insubordination was the cause for some concern in Washington. There was a general sense that MacArthur had made a potentially dangerous gamble, but none of his superiors wanted to risk a confrontation with him. As Omar Bradley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, later recalled, quote, As in the case of the Incheon Plan, it was really too late for the JCS to do anything about the order. We were all deeply apprehensive. We were frank with each other, but perhaps we weren't frank enough. End quote. As I mentioned earlier, the Chinese had already decided to intervene in Korea by the time of the Wake Island Conference. Of course, such a consequential decision had not been reached lightly, or without considerable debate among the upper echelons of China's leadership. In episode 3 of the series, I described Kim Il-sung's last state visit to Moscow three months before the outbreak of the war. Soviet leader Joseph Stalin believed Kim when he claimed that he could win the war in a matter of days, and gave him his blessing to proceed with his plan. At that time, Stalin was under the assumption that the United States would not intervene, but still cautioned Kim that if things went sideways for the North Koreans, the USSR would not be able to come to their aid, and they would instead have to ask China for help. Despite this admonition, Kim Il-sung, facing near certain defeat, wrote a desperate plea to Stalin, dated October 1st, quote, We are determined to overcome all the difficulties facing us so that Korea will not become a colony of the U.S. imperialists. This notwithstanding, if the enemy does not allow us some time to implement the measures which we plan, and, making use of our extremely grave situation, steps up its offensive operations into North Korea, then we will not be able to stop the enemy troops solely with our own forces. Therefore, dear Yosef Vissarionovich, we cannot help but ask for you to provide us with special assistance. End quote. True to his word, Stalin passed the message along to Beijing, recommending that China deploy five or six divisions to Korea as soon as possible. The following day, Chairman Mao Zedong called for an emergency meeting of the Communist Party's Politburo to discuss the issue. Mao was initially quite supportive of an intervention in Korea, as evidenced by a telegram to Stalin that was dated October 2nd, 1950, but was most likely drafted some time before. It reads in part, quote, We decided to send part of the army to Korean territory to fight the forces of America and the puppet Syngman Rhee in support of our Korean comrades. We regard this mission as essential because if all of Korea is occupied by the Americans, the revolutionary power of Korea will be completely defeated. In that case, the American aggressors will become increasingly frenzied to the detriment of the entire East, end quote. This message was never sent. The chairman learned at this meeting that most of the other members of the Politburo were opposed to intervention in Korea, and not without reason. Their arguments were rather convincing. The country, they said, was exhausted after having endured over two decades of near-constant war. Reconstruction efforts had only just begun, and there were serious doubts as to whether it would be possible to marshal the resources necessary to fight another war. Even if these concerns could be adequately addressed, the Americans still possessed a clear advantage in terms of technology, especially with their state-of-the-art military aircraft, against which the Chinese had no effective means of defense, not to mention their rapidly growing stockpile of atomic weapons. Then, of course, there was the possibility that the war would not remain confined to the Korean Peninsula, and the situation would escalate into a wider regional conflict. The greatest concern in this regard was that China's entry into the war would lead to a confrontation with the United States over Taiwan. It had only been a year since the conclusion of the Chinese Civil War and the retreat of the nationalist Kuomintang government to Taiwan. Relations between Taiwan and the mainland had not been normalized, and legally speaking, a state of war continued to exist between the two governments. Beijing had made the conquest of Taiwan a priority in its geopolitical agenda, seeing it as the logical final stage of the Civil War. The most significant factor standing in the way of this was the United States, which was at this point committed to propping up the nationalist regime in Taiwan. Back in June 1950, President Truman had ordered the U.S. 7th Fleet into the Straits of Taiwan in order to deter an invasion from the mainland. If the United States declared war in response to China's intervention in Korea, China's coastal cities would be vulnerable to attack. Moreover, there were some figures in the United States government most notably General MacArthur, who were quite vocal about their support for Taiwan and openly criticized the Truman administration for not taking more active measures to facilitate a nationalist return to the mainland. Needless to say, it was this scenario, open war with the United States and the resumption of civil war, that the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party was quite anxious to avoid, and which gave them pause when considering the problem of Korea. 
Even Chairman Mao, who had initially been in favor of intervention, appears to have been convinced by these arguments. His official response to Stalin's message of October 1st was sent on the 3rd. In the telegram, Mao took up the position opposite to the one he had originally argued in favor of in the first draft of his response that I quoted earlier, voicing some of the concerns of the other Politburo members. This reply read, quote, We initially planned to send several divisions into North Korea to assist our Korean comrades if the enemy attacked north of the 38th parallel. However, upon closer consideration, we now think that such an action would have extremely serious consequences. Firstly, it would be difficult to resolve the Korean problem even with several divisions. Secondly, intervention would bring about an open conflict between China and the United States, which might also drag the Soviet Union into the war. Many Central Committee comrades think that we should be cautious. Of course, to our Korean comrades who are in such a difficult situation, not to get our troops in support would be very bad. We ourselves think it would be regrettable. Korea might be temporarily defeated, but the form of the struggle will change to a partisan war. We will hold a general meeting of the Central Committee attended by all the responsible comrades from each bureau. A final decision has not yet been made on this problem. This is a preliminary telegram, and we wish to consult with you. If you concur, we will send comrades Cho Enlai and Lin Biao to your vacation place. They are prepared to consult with you on this problem and to report on the situation in China and Korea. I await your response. End quote. Stalin's response was received the following day. He urged Mao to honor his earlier promises to aid the North Koreans. He argued in four points why the situation was favorable for China to intervene. Firstly, the events in Korea had demonstrated that the United States was unprepared for a war against another major power. Secondly, Japan, which had yet to recover its economic and military strength, was in no position to offer the United States any significant assistance. Third, given points one and two, the U.S., being unwilling to mire itself in a prolonged war, was likely to accept some sort of settlement that would, at the very least, allow for the continued existence of North Korea as a buffer state. Finally, failure to achieve their aims in Korea would cause the United States to reorient their foreign policy and would likely lead to them abandoning their support for Taiwan. But, Stalin emphasized, if the Chinese desired such an outcome, they would have to intervene in Korea and make an overwhelming show of force there before the window of opportunity closed. He also offered his reassurances that the Soviet Union would come to China's aid in the unlikely event that the war escalated. Quote, if war is inevitable, then let it be waged now. End quote. The CCP Politburo was reconvened on October 4th. At this time, the Politburo consisted of 15 members, of whom only 12 had been present for the past week's deliberations. For this session, Mao urgently summoned another member, who had been absent thus far, General Peng Dehuai. Thanks to the role that he played in the defeat of both the Nationalists and the Japanese, Peng Dehuai was one of the oldest and most respected senior officers of the People's Liberation Army, second only to Lin Piao. A native of Hunan province just like Mao, Peng's relationship with the chairman went back decades, back to the storied days of the Jiangxi Soviet and the Long March. Mao affectionately referred to Peng as Old Peng, or sometimes Younger Brother. What's more, he placed great confidence in the general's judgment as far as military matters were concerned. It was in the early evening of October 4th when Peng arrived at Chongnanhai, the compound in Beijing, where meetings of the Politburo were held. Mao was quite pleased to see him and immediately began to debrief him on the situation. Peng, whose ongoing efforts to suppress the nationalist-backed Islamic insurgency in the Xinjiang region had kept him away from the capital for quite some time, was relatively unfamiliar with the situation in Korea. Throughout the meeting, he sat and listened as the other members of the Politburo expressed their various concerns regarding intervention, which I described earlier. The only voice to speak in favor was the chairman himself. The meeting lasted well into the night until it was adjourned. Peng spent a long and sleepless night mulling over the new information and taking all the arguments into consideration. In the morning, he met with the chairman in his office. The general stated that he was in favor of an intervention in Korea, much to the chairman's delight. The Politburo was convened again that evening, and the debate recommenced. Once again, Lin Piao voiced his concerns and recommended looking into other ways to support the Koreans indirectly. Then the chairman spoke. Echoing the sentiments expressed by Stalin, Mao posited that a confrontation with the United States was more or less inevitable, and that if it did not occur now, it was likely to happen sometime in the future. The war in Korea, he argued, was merely the first stage in a larger anti-communist crusade that the United States and its allies planned to wage in Asia. 
There was ample evidence to suggest that this was indeed the case. Mao pointed to the presence of the U.S. 7th Fleet in the Straits of Taiwan and the escalating American involvement in the war in Indochina as proof of this. If anti-communist forces were allowed to conquer all of Korea through China's inaction, Mao argued, this would only make the inevitable future confrontation all the more difficult for China. Next, Peng, who had been silent the entire time, finally spoke up. He said that while he acknowledged the concerns that the others had raised, he ultimately agreed with Mao in that they could ill afford to ignore the potentially disastrous consequences of a total American victory in Korea. Quoting an old idiom, Peng said, quote, The tiger wants to eat people and will do so when he is hungry. End quote. Following up, Mao made a further appeal on the grounds of socialist solidarity and internationalism. Thousands of ethnic Koreans, he reminded those present, had served in the People's Liberation Army and fought on behalf of the Chinese Revolution. It was only right that they should be repaid for their service. Moreover, if they failed to help their Korean comrades in their greatest hour of need, then the principle of internationalism would become nothing more than empty words. Quote, when other people are in crisis, how can we stand aside with our arms folded? End quote. The combination of Peng and Mao's words carried much weight. One by one, the other members of the Politburo came to express their support for intervention in Korea, and a consensus was soon reached. The discussion then turned to practical matters. A unanimous vote was taken to create a new expeditionary force, officially called the People's Volunteer Army, with General Peng Dehuai appointed as its commander. On October 8th, Mao sent a telegram to Kim Il-sung informing him of the Politburo's decision, quote, in view of the current situation, we've decided to send volunteers to Korea to fight against the aggressors, end quote. It was the chairman's wish that Chinese forces would cross the border by the 19th and reach the front lines by the end of the month. Time was absolutely of the essence, and although some preliminary measures had already been taken in past weeks, there was still much to be done. Towards the top of the list of current priorities was to determine how much assistance, if any, the Soviets were willing to contribute to China's mission in Korea. To this end, Chou Enlai and Lin Piao were dispatched to meet with Stalin at his vacation home in Sochi, a resort town on the Black Sea coast. There, the Chinese delegation met with Stalin and the assembled members of the Soviet Politburo. Chou provided the Soviets with his assessment of conditions in China and Korea, but initially reported that they had decided against intervention. This, as we all know, was not true, but Chou was attempting to entice Stalin to not only express his desire for China to intervene, but also to commit to supporting the Chinese militarily. Most importantly, it was his aim to secure Soviet air support. Cho's gambit was only partially successful. Stalin started a lengthy speech about why intervening in Korea was in China's national interests, and stated that although the Soviets would try to avoid direct combat, they were not adverse to providing material support to the Chinese. Quote, We long ago announced the prompt, complete withdrawal of our forces from Korea. It is difficult for us to send troops there again. It would be tantamount to a state of war with the United States. China can deploy a certain number of troops, I think. We can provide weapons and equipment, and at a strategic time, we can deploy a certain amount of aircraft to provide cover. Of course, this will be limited to rear areas and this side of the battlefield. We cannot go into the enemy's rear areas. We must avoid having aircraft being shot down and Soviet pilots being taken prisoner by the enemy. This would have a bad effect internationally." End quote. Stalin's refusal to authorize the Soviet Air Force to engage in operations over Korea caused Mao to temporarily suspend the mobilization order, and he considered calling off the operation altogether. As PLA General Ni Rongjen recalled, quote, Chairman Mao Zedong remained undecided even when our forces had begun to reach the Yalu River. He racked his brain and indeed thought about this many times before he made up his mind, end quote. A further emergency meeting of the Chinese Politburo was convened in the evening of October 12th. The Soviets' intransigence was disheartening, the chairman said, but he urged his fellow Politburo members to stay the course nonetheless. They voted unanimously in favor of intervention once more. As Mao wrote in a message to Zhou, quote, In short, I think we should enter the war, and we must enter the war. If we go to war, the gain will be very large, and if we do not go to war, the loss will be very large, end quote. Zhou was instructed to keep pressing the Soviets for air support, but the intervention would proceed with or without it. Two days later, the foreign minister was able to reach an understanding with the Soviets. They would commit their air force to Korea, but they would need two, perhaps maybe two and a half months to prepare. With these reassurances in hand, the newly created People's Volunteer Army continued to amass in northeastern China near the border with Korea. 
Chinese troops began to cross the border under the cover of darkness on the night of October 19, 1950. The following literary description of this event comes courtesy of Charles J. Hanley's book, Ghost Flames, and is told from the perspective of General Peng. Quote, The Yalu River first spills from a lake atop snow-capped Mount Baekdu in Korea's northeastern corner, then winds 500 miles southwest, where its shallow gray-green waters flow in between two cities, Dandong in China and Sinuju in North Korea, before it empties into the Yellow Sea. A pair of sturdy steel bridges built by the Japanese in colonial times, three-quarters of a mile long, link the two cities. In the deepening darkness of the evening, General Peng Dehuai stands on the Dandong Riverside and watches as a long, shadowy stream of figures crosses one of these bridges in near silence, the armed manpower of China pouring south into Korea. An advance guard of the People's Liberation Army's 40th Army led the way at 5.30 that evening as the sun set, taken by train over the railroad bridge. Thousands of other troops are following, in vehicles and on foot, joined by ox carts, ponies, and thousands of Manchurian laborers pressed into service as bearers of ammunition and supplies. Every soldier has stripped the Red Star from his cap and other PLA insignia from his green cotton uniform. They are now the Chinese People's Volunteer Force, a charade devised by the leadership to pretend the communist Chinese government, which is currently seeking UN membership, is not perceived as going to war against the United Nations and Korea. Volunteers indeed, Peng later jokes. I'm no volunteer, my boss sent me here. It's growing colder by the hour, and the time comes for the commander to join his troops. Peng climbs into an automobile with his Chinese-speaking North Korean liaison. His secretary, bodyguards, and a Korean interpreter fill out the small party in the car and a trailing radio truck as it rolls south across the Yalu towards the war. End quote. As I quoted General Ni as saying earlier, there was still a great deal of uncertainty among the Chinese leadership, both civilian and military, until the very last moment. A few days before the operation was set to commence, Peng held a conference with his subordinate generals to discuss strategy. Here I again read from Hanley's Ghost Flames, quote, Peng knew his generals had grown uneasy over the rushed mobilization and the firepower of the Americans. In his gruff Hunanese peasant accent, he tries to assure them, both as soldiers and as Communist Party loyalists. The Americans' morale is poor, and they're dispersing their forces vulnerably throughout North Korea, he said. Tactically, we are better than the enemy, he told them. Our troops will seek to close in on the Americans with bayonets and hand grenades. The enemy is afraid of such operations. He told them how a handful of big U.S. capitalists were behind the war. How pathetic for the world revolution if we stood by with folded arms and did not actively help a neighboring nation struggle against aggression. End quote. The strategy was to move as many troops across the river as quickly as possible before the enemy deduced what was going on and bombed the bridges over the Yalu. Major movements of troops and supplies had to be undertaken at night so as to avoid detection by American reconnaissance aircraft. Twelve divisions of the PVA entered Korea on the night of October 19th, six at Dandong and another six at Ji'an, over 200 miles to the northeast. A week later, they would be joined by six more divisions, bringing their total strength to about 260,000 men. Once the majority of his forces were in the country, Peng planned to establish a defensive line across the DPRK's northernmost provinces to halt the enemy before they reached the Yalu. However, the extremely rapid advance of UN forces through the country forced the Chinese to take up the offensive immediately to push the enemy back. Another account of these critical early days of the Chinese intervention was written by Captain Zhou Baoshan of the 116th Division, 39th Army of the PVA, and can be found in Chapter 11 of Peters and Lee's book, Voices from the Korean War. Quote, After two months of preparations, our regiment crossed the Yalu River, the boundary that separated China from Korea, on the evening of October 19th. We crossed at Dandong. Under its light control and curfew, the city was both dark and quiet when our trucks rolled through its streets. I could see the local troops guarding each intersection, and patrol vehicles were everywhere. I could feel the war. While still on the Chinese side of the bridge, our troops got off the trucks and marched across the bridge. A great many artillery vehicles, trucks, horses, and soldiers crossed the bridge that night. Though the traffic was unbelievably heavy, nobody yelled, complained, or even talked. All the faces looked so serious, because they knew that they were going to war. When we marched to the middle point of the bridge, we saw a sign in Chinese and Korean that divided the two countries. The first Koreans I saw were security guards of the KPA, stationed on the Korean side of the Yalu Bridge. They lined up and cheered in broken Chinese. Welcome the Chinese People's Volunteer Forces coming to Korea to fight. 
I was quite impressed by their Soviet-made automatic rifles and their brand new heavy machine guns. We had a mix of single-shot Japanese rifles from World War II and old American rifles captured from the Kuomintang army during the Chinese Civil War. Our regiment kept marching 25 miles southeast into Korea through the first night and stopped at dawn. For several days, we moved at full speed in the same pattern, marching at night and resting during the day. I was surprised to see my soldiers become so excited after we entered Korea. It was the first time any of us had entered a foreign country. Everything seemed so different but so intriguing. We talked to the Korean people when possible, and we tried to read the Korean signs, even though we didn't understand them at all." End quote. During the first phase of the Chinese offensive, the plan was to probe the UN lines for weaknesses and concentrate their forces where the enemy was believed to be most vulnerable. In other words, they would isolate units of the ROK army to attack. The PVA made first contact with UN forces on October 25th when it ambushed elements of the ROK Army 2nd Corps near the village of Anjong, some 50 or so miles south of the Yalu. The South Koreans had been caught completely by surprise and were quickly overwhelmed. The 6th and 10th Infantry Divisions of the ROK Army were completely decimated in the attack, with only fractions of either unit managing to escape the battlefield without being killed or captured. Eager to follow up on this victory, General Pung designated the next target of attack, the ROK Army garrison at Unsan, a small mining town a few miles down the road. Zhou Baoshen, the PVA captain I quoted from at length just a bit ago, wrote his recollections of the ensuing battle, quote, We kept moving fast in the same direction towards Unsan. Having reached the area by the 25th, we were ordered to get ready to engage the frontline ROK units. The battalion commander told us that the ROK 1st Division was stationed at Unsan, about 20 miles from our position. The 39th Army planned to encircle the town and establish roadblocks in case the enemy tried to withdraw. Then the army would deploy the 115th Division to attack Unsan from the southwest, the 116th from the north, and the 117th from the east. We were told not to engage American or British units during this offensive campaign. We should avoid superior firepower, attack only weak enemy units, and gain some successful combat experience during our first battle. On the night of the 27th, we moved into our positions near Hill 626, where my company was supposed to launch an attack at 1900 hours the following evening. The next morning, I could observe the ROK soldiers moving frantically in and out of their bunkers, and I could hear them yelling to each other on the hill. Through the whole day, sitting in the trench at the bottom of the hill, I had mixed feelings of excitement and nervousness. As a war veteran, I was excited to have the chance to fight again. As a captain, however, it was my first time commanding a company, and my first time fighting enemy soldiers who did not speak Chinese. I practiced a few Korean words we had just learned, such as Jungji, don't move, and Hanbak Animyun Juknonda, surrender or die. I thought I might need to use these phrases when we launched our attack that evening. That afternoon, one of our sentries reported to me that the enemy was moving out. I looked out and saw a couple dozen ROK soldiers packing up their supplies, walking out of the bunkers and disappearing towards the other side of the hill. I reported the ROK troops' withdrawal immediately to the battalion headquarters and suggested that we launch our attack as soon as possible. Dong Wenkai, our battalion's commander, called me back and rescheduled the attack for 5 p.m. At 4.50, our supporting artillery began shelling and the hill was soon covered with heavy smoke. Ten minutes later, four PVA companies, about 500 Chinese soldiers, charged the hill together. We met with only light resistance. Commander Dong ordered us to continue our charge towards the next enemy position on Hill 96. We captured three hills in less than two hours and moved closer and closer to Unsan. The ROK soldiers seemed to have simply disappeared and we suffered only a few casualties. I didn't expect that the first battle would be such an easy job. End quote. Unbeknownst to the Chinese, the commander of the ROK garrison near Unsan, having learned of the impending attack from a captured Chinese prisoner, put out an urgent call for reinforcements and withdrew his troops. The 5th and 8th Cavalry Regiments of the U.S. Army responded and took up positions outside the town on the night of the 27th. Captain Joe continues his account of the battle, quote, We did not know the truth of the situation until that night. When we reached a hill north of Unsan, we met with a very strong defense. Commander Dong deployed the 5th and 6th companies to charge the hill several times. They failed and suffered heavy casualties, losing most of their men and both of their captains. The 4th is up next, Dong shouted to me over the phone. They are not Koreans, they are Americans. He hung up before I could ask a question. I became excited. After running around all evening without a serious fight, we were now facing a real challenge, the American troops. It had become completely dark by the time we moved out and forward to the bottom of the hill. But the hill soon lit up because of the heavy enemy shelling. 
Their firepower was so strong that it could hit every part of the hill. At that point, I realized there was no way for us to take the hill before enemy artillery and machine guns wiped out my entire company. I wanted to persuade Dong to halt the next charge until our artillery support and regimental reinforcements could take part in the attack. Slightly wounded and growing desperate, Dong began organizing the next assault formation. Ten minutes. Get ready. I understood his decision and the situation that we now faced. The night was on our side, but the enemy dominated the day. If we failed to take Unsan and destroy the garrison there tonight, the enemy would reinforce their troops and secure the town with their superior air power. Our entire offensive operation would fail. I followed Dong's orders without saying anything. I told my soldiers to drop their equipment, food, blankets, water bottles, in order to run faster. Our only chance was that some of us might be able to run fast enough to reach the top of the hill before the enemy fire dropped all of us. I tried to talk to as many soldiers as I could. This might be the last time I would see them. We got lucky. The regimental commander, Li Gang, arrived with the 1st Battalion just before we launched our attack. Li reorganized our assault formation, adding two more companies as the frontal attacking force, and ordering a mortar company to move forward to increase the covering fire. Li also ordered the deputy commander of the 1st Battalion to move around the hill and flank the enemy position. It took an hour to prepare for the assault. At midnight, Li gave the order to attack. Good luck. See you in Unsan, Commander Dong said to me. In Unsan, I saluted him. I did not know that these would be the last words that we would speak to each other. Running, I led my company up the hill. This was a race between our soldiers and the enemy's projectiles. I saw some of them get shot and fall, but I kept yelling loudly, pressing the attack. Charge. Faster. To the top. The faster the men ran, the better their chances were of survival. I kicked several of the men who slowed down, and I pushed those who tried to look for cover. Suddenly, I felt as though someone had kicked me in the shin, and I almost fell down. Somehow, I managed to balance myself and continue running, but at a slower pace. After a brief melee fight at the top of the hill, the enemy soldiers gave up and withdrew. We made it. I cheered with the other soldiers, but I couldn't help but sit on the ground. Captain Joe, you have been shot, one of my soldiers said to me. I reached for my knees and felt blood all over my left leg. A terrible pain suddenly hit me so strong it almost knocked me out. A couple of my soldiers stayed by my side and tried to help me stop the bleeding. I stayed on the hill all night waiting for medical units. I never made it to Unsan, nor did any of my soldiers. In fact, Commander Lee ordered my battalion to wait in the area for reinforcements since we'd lost more than half our men in the assault. Commander Dong did not make it to Unsan either. He suffered multiple wounds and died a couple days later in a field hospital. End quote. I apologize for the rather lengthy quote here, but I feel that Joe's description of this particular battle can impart a pretty good sense of the dynamics that would be at play in future confrontations between American and Chinese forces through the rest of the war. If you're curious about Captain Joe's fate, he was sent to a field hospital near Sinuju, where he eventually recovered from his wound, although he was permanently disabled and was unable to return to active combat duty. He was assigned to an engineering unit and remained in Korea until the autumn of 1954, over a year after the cessation of hostilities. Upon returning to China, Zhou retired from the army and continued to work as a railroad engineer. During China's Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976, some of his younger co-workers started to question Zhou's service in Korea, asking why he had been transferred to a non-combat unit and why he never earned a promotion past the rank of captain. He tried to explain himself, but as he later wrote, quote, Nobody believed me, and I was labeled as a deserter. I did not provide any further explanation, but I did not complain. Having thought so many times of my dead comrades, I merely considered myself lucky to be one of the survivors of the Korean War. End quote. In mid-October 1950, the forces under the UN command were supremely confident of victory in Korea, but with China's timely intervention, the entire conflict was about to take another turn. It would take over a month for the UNC to realize the gravity of the situation, and even longer for them to organize an effective response. But this episode has gone on for a lot longer than usual, so I'll have to end things here for the time being. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks for the next episode as we continue the story of the Korean War. In the meantime, any questions, comments, or concerns can be directed to the show's email address, perspectivesinhistorypod at gmail.com. Also, feel free to contact me on Facebook or the site formerly known as Twitter, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you like the show and want to help keep it going for the foreseeable future, you can do so either by becoming a supporter on Patreon or by purchasing some used books from me on eBay. Links to both of these sites will also be available in the episode's description. 
Before signing off, I'd like to apologize once again for this episode's delay, and to thank you for your patience as I work to get these script rewrites completed and to produce these episodes in a reasonable time frame. With any luck, the next four episodes of the series won't be subject to significant delays, but just be aware that it is a possibility. Anyway, that's all for now. This has been the Perspectives in History podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Will Connor, signing off. Thank you.